Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Who's going to benefit if we use Matthew 18? The church. The church has to be seen then as a group that's protecting itself rather than seeking the truth. A Christian response immediately looks for the victim and finds the wounded person and says, that's where we're going to shower our grace first. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger on the show. They wrote the incredible book, A Church Called Tove, and I'm really excited to talk to them about abuse within church cultures. I know that the show specifically deals with independent Baptist churches and the abuse that often happens within that movement, but as I've said on the show before, abuse looks the same in pretty much any context. It's the same dynamics. It's the same uh, kind of outflow of of the cultures that these uh, abuses take place in. But um, yeah, before we get started, can the two of you just give me a little bit of context about what led to actually writing this book? Because this isn't a topic that people necessarily get excited to, to write about out of nowhere. The whole story started for us when up here in Chicagoland, those of us who attended Willow Creek or live near nearby, the story broke about Bill Hybels. It was March 23, 2018, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's when the whole journey began for us is reading the article um, in disbelief, especially at the headline at first, we thought, well, we just kind of rolled our eyes. Like, there's no way that this is true about Bill Hybels. We've respected him. We've gone to Willow Creek for 20 years. It's just not true. Well, then we started reading the article and knowing the names of the women Yeah. and reading the names of the women. And we knew most of them. And we knew the names of the other people in the article who were supporting the women. Mm-hmm. And, um, Dad, maybe you want to jump in now, but that's really how it all got started for us is is the women and feeling like they were being 
slandered, um, frankly, to the world because Willow Creek has a global stage and they had no platform. And it felt like we just felt like this can't be how the story ends. It can't be that they get buried, their story isn't told, and this big mega church abuses them and wins. Well, that's that's what usually happens. And Scott, I'd definitely love for you to jump in on this. But I I I loved in the book that you that you said that uh, that you made note of the fact that when you first heard the allegations, you did roll your you literally said they rolled your eyes, and it was like oh someone's trying to attack the church. And the reality is most of these stories don't make it past that point. Everyone rolls their eyes, shrugs it off, moves on. Why do you think that that's kind of the default response when we hear allegations like this in a church setting? Well, if you ask why, I think the answer to that is, um, number one, people believe in the integrity and, let's say, moral virtue of their pastors. And then the second reason is because they have so much power Hmm. and strength and they have a huge platform that when someone makes an accusation, it's um, the chances of it succeeding are so much less because there's no power. I grew up in an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. Hmm. Well, we were kind of connected to the conservative Baptist, but we weren't. I mean, we were completely independent and our pastor was accused by a woman. In fact, she walked forward in a service and slapped the pastor in front of everyone and said something like this. This pastor tried to hustle me in a dark alley. And I remember I was in about the fourth row and I went, whoa, what is this about? I was probably 13 years old, 14. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I was 12, 13 or 14. So the story ended up being that they just silenced her and said she mm-hmm. was a lunatic fringe. Right. And I think over time it became true. It became clear that that story was almost certainly true. Mm. So there's power involved, Eric, and there is uh, assumed integrity on the part of the pastor, along with the lack of platform of women. So these stories tend to be believed. Now, when the story came out with, with Willow, um, I, I said to Lauren Mark that night, it probably happened. Mm. When you have this group of women coming forward, knowing the vulnerability of the women, that they're going to be accused, they're going to be maligned, they have to take a lot of pressure to come forward, and it hurts their reputation. They were all ministers uh, at some level. So it took a lot of courage. And I said, this kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, One person against one person is difficult to prove. Three or four women coming forward against one person with similar stories. The jig is up, as they say, in fishing. You know, uh, we can see the pattern of what's happening. According to the Chicago Tribune, an independent advisory group that reviewed the allegations against Bill Hybels found that claims of sexually inappropriate words and actions are credible and that the well-known pastor should have faced discipline if he had not resigned. The report states that Hybels verbally and emotionally intimidated both male and female employees. So I immediately told Laura Mark, this, this story happened and everything matters on how Willow responds. They can either pound the women or they can tell the truth. And it's going to be very difficult 
to tell the truth. And Willow has made the wrong decision time and time again. Now, when the story started coming out about James McDonald, and, and he was an independent fundamentalist guy, that one I believed immediately because I had too many friends who had worked for him who told me stories. So I, there wasn't anything about him that I'm surprised by. Uh, and, and you know, Eric, what happened is the Roman Catholic uh, priest story was in the air. And then the Southern Baptist story came out in the Houston Chronicle with well, almost 500 ministers impugned. Um, that's when, or charged or allegations, that's when we knew we had a huge problem on our hands. And we only wrote this book. I only participated in writing this book because Laura kept pushing and asking questions and uh, I am the sort of person who thinks by writing. So writing, I have scribbler's itch. And um, so one day in an airport, I sat down and wrote down thoughts. I had a couple hours. And I was very satisfied with what I had written. I put together the story as I knew it and some proper responses. And then that became, uh, a couple months later, became the first blog post that... Um, put me on the scene of this conversation. Prior to that, I had uh, kept quiet, talked to my students, and I talked to Lauren Mark. But other than that, uh, I, I hadn't gone public and was trying to avoid going public, but Laura made sure that didn't happen. <laughs> right. L Laura, what was kind of the motivation for you to say like, oh, this should be a book. This should be something that we, we talk about beyond just Willow Creek. I mean, was it just seeing a pattern of these stories happening? What was it that kind of fueled your, your passion for it? Well, it started with Willow Creek. And so my husband, Mark and I would, something would come out of Willow Creek, a message for one big one, for example, was the elders telling the congregation that they wish the women were following Matthew 18 and they believe in going, you know, one-on-one -on -one rather than taking the issue to the media. And it just, it never, it didn't settle well messages like that in my, in my soul really. And the other thing that was really bothering me is that I would sit down with friends, people that we knew congregants, and they would hear the elders or the pastor say something and then they would follow, which I understand now is a form of spiritual abuse of the congregation. I didn't know that at the time. It just didn't feel right. So I would call my dad and ask him, you know, explain what's happening. And he he's a theologian. So he would interpret the Bible and he would explain that the church actually is not interpreting the Bible correctly. They're not using scripture. They're using it to be correctly they're using it to be abusive. This is the this is the verse they should be looking at. And he would talk about Deuteronomy. And so I felt like what what overcame me and the reason I kept pushing him is, is I felt like Mark and I are benefiting so much from hearing wisdom from a theologian and nobody else is is saying anything. Their pastors were silent. I know the women were deeply wounded that of this uh, by the silence of other pastors with voices and platforms and nobody was saying anything my dad had something to say and i just i felt like a larger audience could benefit and and frankly needed to hear the truth of what the bible teaches 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you kept pushing that direction. And I, and I did appreciate in the book, I mean, I've interviewed, like I said, before we started recording, I've interviewed across the spectrum, people who are Christian, people who are atheists. And I think a lot of times when conversations about exposing abuse happen, one of the common accusations is, well, you're attacking the church at large, like you're attacking Christianity, but it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, uh, the book is, is a pretty clear biblical kind of exposition. I mean, it really, it almost reads like a sermon in a lot of ways. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a refreshing take on it. And I, I how, did, how did you, did you have kind of a gut feeling like, oh, this isn't going to be received super well by a lot of people in the church? Did you have any kind of concern putting out a book like this into kind of the Christian, uh, kind of the Christian ethos? Well, we well, knew. Both of, well, both of us can talk about this one. So go yeah, ahead. I mean, we knew that there would be people that are angry and since it's been published, I've gotten letters about, and not a lot, but I've gotten comments and letters about, you're just trying to make money off of our pain. Um, and I don't think that they've actually really read the book because they would see that it's really not about um, criticizing Willow Creek. It's about healing and doing the right thing and living a better way for the church. Um, but we knew we were ready and expected criticism would come. But for me, it's always been a bigger, bigger than that. Um, there's been people angry at us all, all along the way. And I've always said what the anger that I've received is very small compared to what the women who are, who blew the whistle um, had to endure. No, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, uh a leader at Willow Creek came to me right away and said that I had been, I was too harsh. I think that was the word that was used. That same leader uh, a year later publicly said, I thought you were harsh, but you told the truth and you weren't harsh. It was just too hard to take. And this is, this is what we faced. You know, Eric, it would be easy to write an expose of these churches, Sovereign Grace, the Catholic churches, which has been written by Frederick Martel, um, the Southern Baptist churches, Willow Creek, Harvest. It's easy to write an expose and to just excoriate the leaders accusing them of, of everything. But that, that had been done. The stories that we tell are stories that are largely in the media already. I mean, we're not, we're not digging up new, new stories. Uh, we do have one story in there that uh, other people hadn't heard yet, uh, Carrie Latticer. We, we, have, we have facts that other people didn't know. We put together some things that people probably didn't know about. Some of the people who at Willow didn't know much about Harvest, didn't know about C.J. Mahaney, didn't know about the Southern Baptists or the Catholics or whatever. We, we know that, but, so we collected things. But our goal, and I said this to Laura right away, because I had been offered to write a book about Willow Creek, which was an expose, and I said I, I wouldn't do that and I couldn't do it because I'm not trained as a church historian enough to be able to do that sort of thing. But I said, we want the book to be redemptive. And so every chapter has some expose. There's some things about, you know, when we talk about celebrity, when we talk about service, we talk about celebrity 
tendencies and temptations. But uh, at this point, I want to give a little credit to our editor. The book, as it was originally written, was a both and in every chapter in almost a balanced way. So we had seven uh, core chapters. There was more to the book. Let's say there's 10 total chapters, but seven core chapters. And, uh, and let's say um, a third of it is expose, a third of it is biblical study, and a third of it is positive example of something uh, as a counter. And our editor said, um, it just never lets up. And I thought, that is a good point. And we were having breakfast with him. And I said, you're right. And I said, that's sort of, I said, I'm a teacher. And this is the sort of way I would present this. He said, we want the book to have a narrative arc. So we worked on the book and especially our editor worked on it so that the tougher parts, the, the more depressing parts, the darker parts were up front and the book moved more in a much more positive direction. And we, uh, I'm so encouraged, I know Laura is too, so encouraged by the number of people who say uh, that this book is very hopeful because that's what was important to us. We, we thought that the both end approach Every chapter ended in hope, but then you got to start with some more negatives. So you forget your hope and you move on. So the, 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 the move of the book and we lost, we lost some stories that I thought were pretty good. And we lost some analysis that I thought was pretty good. But uh, our editor, David, did an amazing job of uh, shifting the plot of the book so that it became redemptive and hopeful. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's important when you're doing stories like this. And I've had to start doing that with the podcast because when I started this show, it was a it was a powder keg of here's this story, this story. And and yeah, it yeah. was it was needed. I think there were there were I mean, there were dozens of people who had never shared their story who were now willing to share. But it was pretty quickly I realized like I need to start, okay, we've exposed it. But if you just do that, you have a very depressing <laughs> series of, of interviews it, necessary, but it's, it's heavy listening. And so it was about five months in, I was like, I need to bring in a therapist. I need to bring in someone to bring in more practical advice on how to prevent. Cause that was the feedback I was getting is like, okay, we know this happens. We're very aware that this is happening now. How do we prevent this? How do we address this? How do we, you know, people are coming and saying, okay, I've talked about trauma, but how do I recover from it? So I I appreciate that in the flow of the book, you know, having that kind of, like you said, it's a very hopeful book. It's something where you get through each chapter and you're like, okay, this is a problem, but here's how, I don't want to say simply, but here's how churches could fix this problem with a couple of simple steps. It's not easy, but it's, it's simple. Um, We, um, Eric, um, I want to I want to piggyback on what you just said. Um, I, I I confess that I cannot look at a Roman Catholic priest hmm. and not wonder if he's a pedophile, because I've read enough about Roman Catholic priests and Frederick Martel's book Out of the Closet. I don't know if you've read that book, but it I is haven't yet. it's unbelievable and. I had a lot about that in the book and we got it. Our editor, our editor said, no, we got to get rid of this. Um, he said, our evangelical people are going to say, okay, the Catholics are a lot worse. So let's not worry about it. And um, 
The same thing goes for megachurches. I'm being asked by people, uh, are all megachurch pastors narcissists? And it's because if you tell stories of megachurch pastors who are narcissistic, and we had a friend who was at Willow who said, I feel like you're too hard on megachurches. And I, I said, I don't want to be, but, and I wasn't. I didn't say that megachurches uh, create this problem. But when you, when you focus on those stories and you focus on pastors being abusive with power and sex, before long, people begin to think that pastors are abusive. And it's not true. Uh, it's not accurate. And I have said so many positive things in my career about pastors. And I wrote a book called Pastor Paul that's almost entirely positive about pastors. So there is, there is, um, there is a tendency. So if you, if you do focus on that, uh, it can overwhelm the message and make people think that it's all bad. Uh, so we, we, we know that story too, and we sympathize with you. Um, you alluded to kind of, kind of celebrity pastor culture. Um, I, I, I know that obviously not every celebrity pastor is bad. Not every Catholic priest is bad. Not every, you know, fill in the blank um, is bad, but, but also we recognize that there's some contexts and cultures that are, you know, can attract pretty harmful situations or at least allow them to take place. And um, you know, any, any environment where someone has an undue, amount of influence on, on a group of people can open the people up to some pretty horrific things. If the wrong person is put in that position, when I look at the celebrity pastor kind of situation, and I look at, I look at people who have large platforms, I feel like I see two kinds of people. I see the people who want a huge platform so they can just help as many people as they can. And they're extremely selfless. Some of the most selfless people I've met and then the other half is that narcissistic, you know, they want the power and the platform. And um, I, I guess, how do you, in the early stages, how do you spot that personality type early on and not let it get to a point? Because by the time you get to a point where it's a Carl Lentz or a Mark Driscoll or a, you know, fill in the blank, you know, all of these different names, it's often there's too much power it's too late to really address it and, and do a lot of damage control. I mean, it, it really is the damage has been done a lot of times. So how do you spot some of these issues early on and identify if somebody is a narcissist or a, you know, just power hungry versus someone who wants a platform to help people? We would all love to have a filter that we could run right through our seminary and just catch all the narcissists and just push them out the door and say, don't ever come back. Right. Uh, it's, it's never that simple, but um, let me, let me say that there are a couple. Um, I, I think in general that narcissists, or let's say this pastors don't become narcissists because of a mega church or a church because narcissists will find uh, power. Um, so in other words, uh, I don't think as a general rule, the church makes the person the narcissist. It's a deeply ingrained personality issue, a desire for grandiosity, a lack of empathy, a desire for power, where everything is about themselves. So I would say, I got a letter this week 
No, what's today? Monday? No, last week. I got a letter uh, from a search committee and said, we've had a series of toxic pastors. We want a Tove pastor. Give me some names, you know. Well, I'm not a search committee, so I'm not, I'm not well. But our, our, our seminary president is a bit of that. So he, he gave them a really good name. And when I heard the name, I went, wow, that guy, that guy really, he's told. Okay, I would say that you, uh, you have to have people on a search committee who are discerning of personality types. I would want a psychologist on every search committee. Maybe if you have... 10 on the, let's say you have five on the search committee. I want two psychologists there because we need to discern the personality type we're dealing with. The other thing is you, if you can't make them take an MMPI, uh, a major personality inventory test, um, you need to get some really shrewd discerning people to catch personality. Forget giftedness, forget power, forget charisma, forget how handsome they are, how beautiful their wife are, and how, how gorgeous their children are, and their music abilities. Forget it all and just start dealing first with personality type. Because powerful, mega, mega uh, let's say mega ego, narcissistic people are going to find power. They're working for it. And if you don't have the gifts of discernment, they're going to find your church. All right. So I, I would say uh, that's one thing. The other thing is look for a lack of empathy. I just heard a pastor publicly brag that he does not have the gift of empathy. That means that he's a narcissist. Okay. A bit of the a sociopath. Is, <laughs> yeah. The second thing is, is I would look for people who um, are into branding their name. You know, so there's a self-centeredness about it. And then I'm very suspicious of people who want fame, who want, who, who you know, make, make uh, this church great again means make me great again so that I can get the glory. I'm convinced that narcissists, love to brag about their churches because it's, and get people clapping for it because it's a way of bragging about them. So uh, those are some of the things. I don't think, um, you know, I can look at my students and I can say to them, I don't see narcissism in them, but they're in a different relationship with me than they will be when they are given power and authority. So it's very difficult to discern in my context. But I would want a psychologist to be able to discern personality type and give them almost veto power in the, con in the context. So I, I'll give you one story. In my independent fundamentalist Baptist church when I was growing up, we brought in a man for a potential pastor who was incredibly gifted. Gabby, he could preach, he could tell stories, he could cry, he could do it all. And um, they 
almost offered him the job. In fact, I think they either did or they were close to it. When they discovered that he had two wives <laughs> and, and he was as gifted uh, a gabber at preaching as you'll ever find. And I'm just so grateful that our church did enough digging on this. A lot of people think they can interview someone and know what that person is like. It is impossible to do it that way. So, okay, I've talked about it. Well, that's what um, Chuck DeGroat's book, um, When When Narcissism Goes to Church, um, it's that's what was interesting is he talks about how quickly we are to label someone a narcissist when we're not, you know, we're not capable of determining that most cases. I mean, there's, I I mean, after reading the book, you know, before reading, I was like, Oh, I've got a list of several people I can think of that would probably fit this (laughs) label. And then, and then midway through the book, I was like, am I a narcissist? I was like, and then I was like, well, I probably am. I think this book is about me. And then, uh, and then I got a little bit further and I was like, okay, I probably know a handful of people that I would feel comfortable with that label, but it's, we broadly label everyone that has any kind of, you know, strong leadership style as a narcissist, even, even if they, you know, it, it's it, to give definitions like that is a, is a dangerous thing. You know, but Chuck the- also says anybody who is on that, who, who is on a platform like preachers yeah, are on the spectrum. Yeah. Because you have to be. You, yeah, that's right. To go up there and preach in front of that many people, you know, you gotta have some, I like, how Chuck, I like how Chuck also says, and I've heard my mom's a psychologist. She says this too, that there's like a continuum. So there's like, you know, it's extreme and it's subtle and there's everything in between. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and that's, that's kind of the, the point I was, I was getting at is that there is, and it, what's hard to determine is that a lot of the things that he talks about in his book, he says, you know, it shows up as, things that we admire. So they're, they're really confident. They're very, um, you know, they're very charismatic. They're very, you know, they're good up in front of people. They can, you know, all of this kind of stuff, they might share really deeply, you know, about different stories and get really, really raw, but then you'll realize later down the road that maybe they're, they've chosen what they're going to share and be vulnerable about. So it is, it's, it's, I, I walked, I walked away from the book, you know, partially feeling really informed, but also like, Oh, it's harder to spot than I thought, which is, which is a little bit discouraging, but um, I'm curious. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Laura, kind of looking at this book and moving into it, as you started digging through these stories, did you get the sense that most of the people who were abusive or, or very narcissistic and controlling, do you feel like that was a personality type before getting into the church context? Or do you feel it's something where as they got more power, they became a little bit more unhinged or domineering or controlling kind of moving forward? I don't know. That's the big question is Mm. what happened? Are they, we don't have as much information on them before they became who they are today. So it's really hard to know. Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. My gut feeling is that there was always, I learned from Chuck DeGroat that the shame that started in childhood and festering and perhaps um, exploded once they achieved the level of power that they did. Um, and once you have the system built around it, it's really hard to dismantle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the systems are enabling that kind of action. Yeah. I would, um, and I would say, uh, again, I don't think the churches create narcissists. 
I think they give a platform for the narcissistic personality to flourish mm. if they don't have discerning skills. So um, Chuck is right. There's a certain personality. You know, a guy did a, a study on pastors. His conclusion was that 70% of pastors are narcissists. Now, his stats were blown to shreds because he didn't know how to do uh, scientific stats in social sciences. But Chuck said, yeah, I know all about the study, and and the study wasn't done with good stats. But um, we we need to recognize there's a certain personality that likes to be in charge. And, uh, you know, a church is going to attract that. The question is whether there is sufficient power checks sufficient service requirements to disempower people from being able to turn it into a game of celebrity for themselves. That's, that's where I think churches can really work to say, look, we're going to have a leader. We need, we've got a big church. We need to have a strong leader. They look at it that way, What they really need is strong leadership, but okay, we'll say a strong leader. Do we have the requisite leaders in place who can challenge this and make sure that this doesn't become a problem and fester into a full-blown narcissistic situation where we can't control things? And this is, this is the story of so many of these pastors, Eric, is that they become so good at what they do. And so important to the money that comes in to support all the budgetary items required that they can't do without them. Hmm. And when a narcissist realizes that people can't operate without them, you're in a bad place. The church is in a bad place. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to spend our entire interview dwelling on necessarily the bad. I, I know the book, uh, A Church Called Tove. One, I mean, for our audience who's seen that going like like me before I started reading the book, what does that mean? What does that even, what, what does that mean? Is it some literary thing? So so for our audience, can you kind of just describe what it means to be a Tove church? And again, we don't want to spoil the entire book, but maybe give just a couple kind of key elements that you've noticed that make a church Tove. And Laura, I'll talk about uh, Tove and what it means, and you can give a couple examples. The, um, the Hebrew word Tove means good. So Genesis 1 has all this. God made the sun, it's Tove. He made humans, it's Tove. And when God looked at everything, it's Tove Ma'od. It's, it's extraordinarily good. So Tove um, is this. Number one, it's a characteristic or attribute of God. He's good. God is good all the time. You know, we sing that song. And then everything God does is good. His, his work is tov. God's design for humans is tov. He wants us to be tov. And um, the ultimate judgment of God, the ultimate way of God looking at his people is to say you are tov. We become tov through the power of God's grace and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I learned right away when I was using this word goodness that it is a word that seemingly, Protestants especially, I can't speak for Catholics and the Orthodox, it, are very nervous about using this word good. Uh, you know, you don't say, I'm, I'm good. People just 
don't want to talk like that because they know a Bible verse that says there is none good, no, not one. And many of them, like me, quoted in the King James Version. But tov is a gift of the Spirit. And Jesus wants us to do tov, and he wants us to be tov. And Paul expects people to be tov, and he even tells the church at Rome that they're full of goodness, tov. So tov is something that we should, uh, that we need to recognize is what God wants for us, and that God, through the power of the Spirit, can work in us so that we become embodiments of tov. None of us are ever going to be perfectly tov in this life. You can ask my wife. Um, and you can, uh, but at the same time, we should grow in the fruits of tov. We developed what my dad called the circle of tov. And the characteristics, and we develop them all in the book, are a Tove church and a Tove person nurtures empathy and grace, puts people first, tells the truth, nurtures justice and service, and seeks to be like Christ. Um, when you were talking, the example that came to mind for me was, a, it's, a, it's in a, one of the chapters that I wrote about in the book. Um, my dad said, all along, you can tell what the culture of a church is. And if they are tove, when a scandal erupts, what is their response? And we, I found one as I was researching, um, his name is Robert Cunningham. He's the pastor of a church called Tate's Creek Presbyterian church in Kentucky. And I was struck by how tove he is and his church's response was when they had an accusation of abuse come to light. And it made me actually feel really emotional as I was reading about it the, at the original story that I read, because I, I just kept thinking if Willow Creek would have responded the way that Robert Cunningham and Takes Creek responded, it would have been a totally different ball game. They would have been, they, the women would have been put first. They would have told the truth. Um, they would have sought to, seek for, you know, forgiveness. Um, and I, I know that I'm rambling a little bit about him. I could go on and on, but um, when story. an accusation comes to light, what is the church's response? That will tell you a lot about the culture. Yeah. I had a, I had a guest on who, who reported an abuse case and it was, it was a situation that he had nothing to do with. He wasn't even at the church when it had originally happened. And um he made a statement on the show that I thought was really good. And he just said, you know, you're, when you find out about this as a pastor, he said, you're a victim of circumstances. You know, you're at that point, you, you, you didn't have any part in it. You're not complicit, but he said, the minute you decide to, or he basically said what you choose to do next determines whether or not you're complicit with what happened. And um, I think that's really true. And there, I don't know if this is the same story that you just referenced, but um, you know, there were, you mentioned one of the pastors in the book when the Me Too movement started, and his response was, "Publish it all." You know, like let's hear every single story. Let's you know, let's try to seek justice for the people who've been hurt. And uh, I think That's it was the words "necessary purge" was the was the term that was used. Yeah, um, he said, "Let the stories come." He said, "The wounded, the abused, they are our prophets. We need to listen to them." And he he told his church we're going to open everything up. I don't know what we're going to find. Whatever we find, we're going to own it. 
And he apologized to the victims first and foremost. He also apologized to the church. He, he apologized to the community that, and he wasn't even the pastor at the time when the abuse occurred. So there are really wonderful stories and examples out there that give me hope and are examples of Tove for us. And we have, and we met, Laura, were, were you on the podcast when we met, when we talked with someone who had that Robert Cunningham as their pastor? Yes, yeah, that was Amber, um, yeah. Yeah, so, but um, it is it is one thing uh, to be like Robert Cunningham and to say we're going to open up the books on a previous story. You know, you have, in a sense, you don't have anything personal personal to lose. You do, you know, your church could take it and you could lose your job because it could be really bad. It's another thing altogether when you are the abuser, the perpetrator, and the allegations come forward. Then two things happen. Then is the perpetrator, the violent person, going to tell the truth and humble himself or herself before the truth? And will the church seek what is good in spite of how much they've glorified this pastor? Those are two really big challenges, and they're they're even the next level from Robert Cunningham and Tate's Presbyterian, Tate's Creek, whatever it was. It's, it's another level when the pastor, like, let's say, whoever it is, has to tell the truth, and it hurts themselves and ruins their reputation and ruins their family, perhaps, and, you know, everything is up. And then the, the church has to be the kind of culture that says, we have to get to the bottom of this. We believe, Eric, that our book, the book by, let's just say, Kristen Kovas Dumay that's out now, the book that's coming out from Beth Allison Barr, um, the books that have come out about other places, we believe these books are putting um, on the radar the significance and importance of churches to respond properly when these allegations emerge. We think that they, there is a redemptive movement going on yeah. in churches to be more honest and truthful about the allegations when they come forward. Hmm. So, you know, we're, we're glad to have participated in this, in that process. Yeah. And we're just one voice. There's others. I mean, there's plenty. Yeah. No, the, I mean, you mentioned some amazing ones. I mean, Kristen Dumay was on the show. Uh, Beth Allison Barr is coming on pretty soon. And they, they, all of them just reading through these books. It's amazing. Even with the launch of this podcast, there was someone who launched a show very similar to this. And I was talking with them out here in Vegas just recently. And, you know, we both were from literally opposite ends of the country and both launched within a week of each other with no, not people literally thought we were the same people that we just did two different shows. And, um, you know, we, we just kept going back to it's providential that there's all these people opening these stories and it's beyond just two mm -hmm. podcasts dealing with independent Baptist churches. I mean, like you mentioned, Krista Dumay, Beth Allison Barr, uh, down a long list of names that are writing incredible books on these topics and all from their own angle, their own specific, yeah, yeah. you know, perspective, but all complementary to each other. Um, yeah. you know, and it's, it's been amazing. 
Um, I, I do want to circle back. So you mentioned churches responding to accusations appropriately. Um, I, I do want to cover this because this comes up time and time again, and I'm sure you've been hit with this response time and time again, is that a lot of churches excuse not responding properly to accusations because they like to accuse accusations of being made improperly or 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 crimes being addressed or or you know keeping people attacking the church the wrong way or not going to this person first. So um, look, when, when something like this happens, you know, it, it gets messy. And a lot of churches will say, you know, you didn't follow Matthew 18, 1 Timothy 5, when it came to addressing this. Um, but you mentioned in the book, and I'd, I'd like for you to expound on this, that sometimes these situations don't make sense in light of those verses. Sometimes those verses are not the best place to point people to, to say, here's how this needs to be addressed. Um, so how would you respond to, to churches that say, Hey, um, you know, people that are coming in and blasting this on social media are going to the news or going about it the wrong way. Well, um, I was having a conversation like this 15 years ago. And uh, I was talking to a, a woman who, in a situation like this arose and she, she, I said, how do you think about this? And she looked at me and she said, Scott, follow the money. (laughs) I went, money, what does this have to do with it? And then she said, but she says, this is a standard statement in the business world, but she said, um, money and power go together. And she said, Ask the question, who is being helped by this conversation? Who, so this is my extrapolation. Who's going to benefit if we use Matthew 18? The church. The church has to be seen then as a group that's protecting itself rather than seeking the truth. A Christian response immediately looks for the victim and finds the wounded person and says, that's where we're gonna shower our grace first. And that's what, uh, that's what I would say is to me, the misuse of Bible verses, for instance, I'll never forget Laura, I think it was Laura said to me, they're now appealing to first Timothy that you can't accuse an elder if you don't have two or three witnesses. And I said, This is ridiculous. How many men sexually abuse a woman in public so that there are other witnesses? I mean, it's almost never, right? The other side of this is the oddest irony of it was, I mean, it's the hypocrisy, the lack of insight, however you want to describe it, is we had at that time four or five women who were all telling a similar story. Is that not two or three witnesses? All right. So um, the use of that verse was done exclusively to silence the women who gained by the use of that verse. When I said, no, let's look at Deuteronomy 22. I put this on my blog. I know that the people from Willow who care about the Bible saw that and went, that's not helping us at all. So their response was probably, for some of them I know it was, that's in the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament. And someone said that to me, and I said, well, when you quoted two or three witnesses, you were quoting from Deuteronomy. 
it. So let's stop with this Old Testament stuff. But the um, I want to ask the question, who benefits from that Bible verse the most? If it's the church, I've got suspicions. It is not divisive to critique sin. It is the calling of prophets to point things out. Now, I don't call myself a prophet ever. Uh, and I've had many people say that the, the, the blog post was prophetic. Thank you very much. I, I'm not going to claim that. But I do think it spoke uh, potently into situations where it needed to be spoken. That's good. A prophetic word from Scott McKnight. There <laughs> right you go. there, no. But follow uh, the money. Right. No, that's that's awesome. Yeah, because that's something I've I'm Isn't sure you've gotten plenty of people reaching out to you for writing the book and dropping all of those statements. And and I, I get that all the time with the show. You know, well, have you gone to them first? Have you done and I'm like there's people pouring out of their church sharing this story and you know, yeah. like you, you break it down in the book. I mean, the deacons boards in a lot of these churches is a joke. <laughs> there's no yeah. accountability for the pastor there. There, it, it looks more like a, a crime syndicate in some of these places than it does a, a church kind of board. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really good. I wanted to dive into that for sure. Um, I, I want to touch on two more things that we're getting close to the end of our time, but I just want to at least address them. One of them is, uh, we mentioned Beth Allison Barr. One of them is the way women are treated in the church, and uh, women are are often not given a a strong voice in the church. I, I don't want to necessarily dive into the conversation about you know women being pastors, things like that. But but what role do you think the the I guess subjection of women in churches plays in a lot of these abuse stories that you that you've talked about? The irony of it all for me, I realized it all came crashing down on me one day. Is I spent the last 20 plus years of my life at Willow Creek that really championed and encouraged the gifts of women. So um, it's, it's ironic to me that behind the scenes with Bill Hybels, there was this double life of abusing, not just women, he abused men too with power and, and verbal um, assault. But um, dad, why don't you answer the question? Well, um Abusers are going to abuse. And um, complementarian theology, hierarchical relationship of men and women, power and hierarchy in churches are going to be attractive to people who are power hungry and narcissistic. I do not believe, I have said this many times, that complementarian theology um, makes people abusive of women. Abusive people abuse. This is important. It's a, it's a personality. It's a character. But complementarian theology attracts abusers because it favors hierarchy and power and structure like that. So I, it's, I don't think it's the theology. I, and I'm also going to say that I believe complementarian theology is wrong I think the construction of it is a 1950s and 60s. Leave it to Beaver, Harriet, Ozzie and Harriet, um, Lassie type, black and white show. That it, that's the world out of which this came. It's not biblical. And William Witt, I don't know if you've done him yet, but William Witt's book, I think, clearly proves this. Uh, Beth, uh, and Beth Allison Barr's book is going to prove it. And Kristen Dumais' book has already proven it. So these books are really 
doing a great job to contextualize complementarian theology as a social construct of the 1990s, 80s that came out of the 1950s as a reaction to the ERA. Now that's a lot of statement right there, but I'm right. So I like what I just said. But um, I don't think complementarian theology necessarily leads to abuse, but there is uh, Stephen Sandage, a sociologist at Boston University, has demonstrated that there is a lack of empathy in complementarian theology, and that is immediately going to lead to uh, a lack of sensitivity to women and to people who have less power. So it's, a, it's an environment that is conducive to abuse. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and and it's something that I've tried to circle back to on the show is that there are abuse. You said it perfectly. Abusers are going to abuse, and they look for systems in which it's easiest to yeah, abuse. That's yeah, why yeah. some get into pastoral ministry for that express purpose. Some get into certain church positions for that purpose. And uh, yeah, I think that's great to point out that you know there's plenty of people who embrace. There's plenty of megachurch pastors who aren't abusive narcissists, and there's plenty of people who are complementarians who aren't abusers. But it's yep, also, yep. we have to examine systems that permit that to happen. Um, but just, just kind of wrapping up, there's one last thing I thought was really good in the book. And it was one of my favorite sections was when you talk about the difference between being a leader and a shepherd. And I want to just close out on this because the, we, we talk about a lot of abusive leaders, but we also in the book have plenty of calls to pastors to be good shepherds, as opposed to describing themselves as strong leaders. Uh, can you just explain the difference between the two and maybe give one or two things where if a, if a pastor is listening to this, I know there's many pastors that do kind of a, an admonishment to, to be a good shepherd, as opposed to trying to be, you know, the, uh, the be all end all leader of their church. Eric, this is a, it's a complex topic and I'm not a special on this, but I have opinions and I've been fighting for this for a long time. Um, when you begin to think of yourself as a leader, you see yourself up front and people following That is not the image of a pastor in the Bible. So I I went through the Bible and did a word cloud on all the passages about shepherds. Um, It is amazing how that differs from uh, what happens in some of these job descriptions. The second thing I would want to say is that pastors, pastor people. Eric, I teach pastors a lot. I can walk into a room and be in the room for 20 minutes and have conversations, and I can tell you who the pastors are. Pastors are not made by an MDiv degree or a master's degree or by giving them a job as a pastor. Pastors are made by God. Pastors have the gift, and they pastor no matter where they are. Laura traveled with us to Turkey and Greece, right, Laura? Mm -hmm. You were with Jeff Blair. Mm-hmm. Jeff Blair is a pastor, all right? He pastored wherever he is because that's his gift. That's what he's called to do. So I am concerned about the growth of leadership cultures in churches that emphasizes a, a leadership model based upon business models. Jack Welch, I think, is the name of the guy that Bill Hybels was so big on. And Instead, I think we need to stop using the word leadership and start using the the term pastoring and start thinking about what people do on the basis of pastoring. 
And, um, and I often uh, have students who will come to me a couple a year will say, do you think, do you think I should be a pastor? I have two questions for them. Number one, who are you pastoring right now? And number two, who sees you as a pastor right now? If they say nobody, I say, well, then you're not a pastor. You're not going to become a pastor by getting the job of a pastor. You are either a pastor or you're not. It's a gift. And I think we need to start focusing far more on that. Now, the last comment I want to make, our responsibility is to be followers, not leaders. We are to follow Jesus. He is the archon, the Greek word for leader. He is the one who leads in church. And we all need to be followers. My friend Dan Kimball is a pastor in Santa Cruz, California. And he's a follower of Jesus who helps other people in his church follow Jesus with him. That's pastoring. That's what we need. Yeah, that's uh, that's that stood out so much in the in the book, and it is something you see so much as you see people go to four years of Bible college and then they're you know they have a label or a title, and they're not prepared to really you know for lack of a better word lead people. They're not they're not ready to yeah. take on a, a position like that. And um, I thought that was just a of of everything in the book. I mean, of, of many things that jumped out at me, that was one section that just kind of blew me away. It was like we we tend to look. Every church planning conference, every every uh, church planning book that you look at, every church plan you listen to, it's a it's a business plant somewhere. It's who's the most charismatic leader we can do. And we're setting up a lot of churches, I think, for disaster because we're building them with a culture of, you know, hey, let's let's make something that's going to draw a lot of people. Let's make sure our marketing is on point. Let's make sure we've got you know advertising here, here, and here. But the conversation of how to actually shepherd people is often the last thing people are figuring out. It's once we you get. Know, I know, I know some people who've had websites before they had anybody in their church. Mm, yeah, I mean, they had mottos and everything. Oh my goodness, this is this is branding. Right. This is not pastoring, by the way. You know, yeah. you know <laughs> what I'm talking. about. Oh, trust <laughs> me, we could sit here and talk about that for a long time. I'm sure. Um, but no, I really do. I, I really appreciate the book. And, and like I said, it, it was, um, it was just a fantastic read and it, it's really important. It ties in, like I said, uh, it, it complements so many books that are coming out right now that are all necessary and hitting every angle that needs to be hit. I mean, Kristen Dumay with the political angle, you've got, you know, Beth Allison Barr, uh, you know, you've got Amy Bird writing, writing her book, yeah, Amy Bird's uh, um, all, all of these just phenomenal. And this was just another piece I feel of that puzzle. So yeah. um, I, I definitely, I'll have a link in the show notes. If anyone wants to go check out and buy a copy of the book, um, you know, if you get it on audible um, you know, it's a great listen. Um, I listened to it pretty, pretty quickly. It's, it's really good to, good to read. Um, if people want to connect with the two of you personally, uh, what's the best route to do that? Best social media platform, uh, website, uh, anything like that? Twitter for me. I'm active on Twitter. Um, Laura and, Berenger? Yeah. Is it Laura M. Berenger? You can find me. I'm not sure. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> They'll be able to find it. All right. I'm on, I have Twitter. I have a couple Facebook accounts. And I have a blog at Christianity Today called Jesus Creed. Awesome. 
Cool. We'll definitely connect with them. And uh, thank you so much, Scott, Laura, for, for jumping on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.